Do you ever have where you like have a set of thoughts that just happen in the wrong order and then things go slightly wrong for you? Probably yes, but you're going to need to elaborate. So I have a water filter jug that I drink water from and fill my kettle from because sure. we live in a horrible area for water. We do. The it is basically water a solid. Is, the tap water is chewy. Very, very <laughs> ank more pork. Crunchy. Um, <laughs> mm, crunchy, crunchy tap water. Anyway, so I filled the kettle from the filter jug to make my coffee. Good. Then I thought, oh, I'm going to want a glass of water. There's not enough water left in the filter jug. I'll fill the filter jug up. Sure. So I did that. Then I went into the living room to uh, set up my blanket fort, spotted my nearly empty glass of water and thought, oh, I'd better fill that up. Walked back into the kitchen and pulled the still filtering jug into, tried to pour the still filtering jug into the glass, mm. which meant that then I had to spend 10 minutes mopping up water in my kitchen. So you're having a good day then? Yeah, yeah, it's going really well. I had a lovely breakfast. Lockdown, Mark 2. Yeah, Lockdown 2, Electric Boogaloo. That's where we are. The Let's... unawaited sequel. The not really, an- well, the anticipated sequel, but it was not yeah. joyful anticipation. Yeah. <laughs> As it's recently been Halloween, I'll throw in a, I see you shiver with anticipation. I don't think I've once managed to get the patient right when singing along with that, and I've listened to it a lot of times. That's why you've got to do a wait for it between anticipate and patient. That times it perfectly. Wait for it. Patient. patient. Ah, very good. <laughs> I was going to say between recording last week's episode and this one, but between recording last week's episode and last week's episode coming out, the lockdown was announced. Obviously, we're in the UK. Uh, so, yeah, it started yesterday, although it feels like it started for me today because I did one last shift yesterday. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, I, because it makes very li- little difference to my life until I want to go to a shop. Um, I was kind of counting today as the first day because of your shifts. So. Yeah. So te- yes, technically it started yesterday. So I went into yeah. work yesterday and uh, closed down the kitchen for the foreseeable. How's that? Bit weird because I didn't have that. So last time we as a business had decided to close before the lockdown was announced. Yes. And the plan was to reopen as a takeaway. So I think we did our last day of business on the Thursday. I went in on the Friday to get rid of all the wastage and start some of the clean down process i turned up to work on monday to be handed a clipboard and told do a stock take and then leave and i'll see you in a few months yeah so it kind of happened really unexpectedly whereas this time i knew this was the last shift i knew when i walked out of the kitchen i wouldn't come back for at least a month because did it feel a bit end of a sitcom yeah turning the light off closing the door (laughs) It was very weird. I did the lights in the lockup. The head chef came through, obviously, to check the state of the kitchen and take a few photos because he's a bit sentimental. Yeah. So uh, in global void scream. Yes, while we're screaming into the void, America. We're now on day three of the, oh my God, please no. Yeah, uh, let me just Have check. Refresh the beeb. <laughs> if you're doing the beeb, I'm doing the guardian. All right. Uh, well, we've got the lead in Georgia, but we're still showing 253 for Biden. Of um, it's still showing t- Electoral College votes. It's still showing 264 on The Guardian. I'm very sorry, America. This must be traumatic. Yeah, when the... Uh, Even more so if this comes out and Trump's president again. <laughs> when the last American election happened, I stayed up quite late watching the first results come in. Because obviously with the mm. time difference, it's a bit funny. Yeah, went to bed, and by the time I woke up, Trump had over two hundred and seventy, which is the what's needed of electoral college votes to become president. Yeah, 
so it was sort of all over and done with in 24 hours. Whereas this time I stayed up a little bit late on the night, but nothing was really declared. Yeah. I ended up waking up at three and five in the morning to check it. I told you, didn't I? I was drifting in and out of sleep from four or five, dreaming about checking the results. And then at six, I was like, for fuck's sake, just look at your phone. Well, I had uh, Guardian had like a lock screen regular update thing. Oh, that sounds healthy. It doesn't buzz. It just comes yeah. up. every. Well, I have my phone on Do Not Disturb most of the time anyway. Yeah. Uh, so it was literally I could just look at my phone screen and see what the result was and go back to sleep. That's a smart little widget, and I'm sure it's caused people to have heart attacks. But yes, <laughs> it is a clever anxiety-inducing widget. Um, so yeah, uh, cross, fing- cross fingers for America. Um, we'll link to the apocalypse playlist in the show notes again, just in case. Yeah, we've got a couple now, don't we? Well, you made the good one that's on Spotify. Yeah, I've got the Spotify one. Uh, have another look through, see if there's anything you want to add, and we'll... That yeah. includes, dear listeners, if you think of any apocalyptic songs we've not added, which is very probable because I think we got bored halfway through because something, something pandemic. It is so unlikely that we wouldn't finish a project, Francine. <laughs> Today, in fairness, I'm late because I was busy researching something for the podcast and lost track of time, not like staring blankly into the middle distance. Oh, I mean, uh, today I'm late because I was eating crepes with mushrooms and goat's cheese. So, oh, it's so such a fucking waste. You living on your own and not, for instance, here. <laughs> <laughs> so relevant, something amazing, Morris. Yeah. It? So I, I don't actually know if we've talked about this on the podcast before. There, the twenty eighth Discworld. Briefly. Yeah, the twenty eighth Discworld novel, the Amazing Morris, which is the, I think, the first Discworld novel aimed at younger readers. Yeah, it is also one of my all-time favourites. Uh, obviously, no spoilers for it because it's quite far ahead of where we are, but it's a great book, and it is getting an animated adaptation that Narrativia greatly approve of, and Rihanna Pratchett greatly approves of. Hooray. Unlike some adaptations, we won't mention. <clears throat> <clears throat> anyway, there's been some. There's been <laughs> some. Boom! Casting. Like filters out those deliberate coughs. We're going to sound mental, but okay. <laughs> That was a dramatic pause, Francine. It's fine. <laughs> uh, there's been some casting news. Uh, this won't mean anything to the listeners of ours that haven't read it yet, but Hugh Laurie has been cast as Morris, which I think is perfect. Yes. And Amelia Clark has been po- cast as Militia, which uh, if this wasn't animated, I wouldn't approve of. But as it's animated, her voice, I think, will be very good. I don't know who that is. She um, plays Daenerys Targaryen in Game of Thrones. Oh, I know her. Yeah. Pretty lady. She is very pretty and tiny. Is she tiny? That's she funny. is tiny. I love her. Um, yeah. My recommendation of the week actually is Hugh Laurie related. Mm. Uh, there's a show called Roadkill on iPlayer. I don't know where you'd watch it if you aren't in the UK. Um, we don't not... recommend VPNs, but it's <laughs> fine. Hugh Laurie is such a likable person, actor, whatever. I like Hugh Laurie so much that it's very hard not to root for him, even though he's a corrupt Tory minister in the show. Excellent. So, uh, fully, fully recommend. It gave me anxiety. Um, but that's not very hard to do. And it's like worth it. it for the entertainment value. I think it's a little mini-series. It's four episodes, so it's not a big commitment. I do need to watch it. It's on my list. I will probably be watching quite a lot of telly in the next few weeks. Yeah, you've got some time <clears> set aside <throat> for nonsense. I have set a small... I, I'm going to do some productive things in this lockdown. I know I said that last time and didn't. Yeah, well, you had a life thing. I, I had a bit of life going on. I have a lot less life going on now. 
Uh, I will be (laughs) cooking delicious food. I will probably get some writing done because I'm more into the habit of writing now. I will attempt to learn uh, web development and programming and shit. Yeah, pretty sparse schedule then. Yeah, and then (laughs) I've set some time aside for nonsense, possibly in the form of PlayStation. Nice. Might play Dragon Age again, just to enrage France soon. All right, before we get into that, then, do you want to do a fucking podcast? Yes, let's... (laughs) Yeah, we're making a Dragon Age podcast, have I not told you? <laughs> you can fucking call Callum up and do a podcast with him. <laughs> Sterling, darling, Sterling. Sterling. Sorry, yeah, no, we're doing really well with the secret identity shit, aren't we? Oh, yeah, we're Sorry. great at it. Um, yeah, okay, let's make a podcast. <laughs> let's make a podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Two Shall Make Key Fret, a podcast in which we are reading and recapping every book from Terry Branchett's Discworld series, one at a time, in chronological order. I'm Joanna Hagen. And I'm Francine Carroll. And this is part two of our discussion of Reaper Man, the 11th Discworld novel. Quick note on spoilers, we are a spoiler light podcast, obviously heavy spoilers for the book we're on, Reaper Man, but we will avoid spoiling any major future events in the Discworld series, and we're saving any and all discussion of the final Discworld novel, The Shepherd's Crown, until we get there, so you, dear listener, can come on the journey with us. Possibly pushed in a strange, organic-looking trolley. Possibly on the back of a combination harvester. One of the two. Well, you got a brand new combination (laughs) harvester. (laughs) (laughs) And I will give you the key. Amazingly, Joanna, considering I've been reading about combine harvesters today, that wasn't in my head until right now. <laughs> I'm so glad I could help. Oh wow! I, the one of the good things about winter is you can see the the steam coming off your mug of coffee. Yes. Sorry, I've just noticed that as you brought Buffy up to stare soullessly at me. She's not soulless. That her bo- picture her is. boyfriend sometimes is. That picture is. She's got dead eyes in that. Well, yes, it's possibly because she's on a porcelain mug. Yeah, well. <laughs> so, uh, what are we doing? <laughs> we don't have anything to really follow up on from last week. No, the only thing is uh, the librarian was explained after all during section two. Oh, yes, he was. How dare when we, he? When we broke into the library. Yes, he got an explanation. Yeah. So, we have not yet had a book featuring the librarian where the librarian is not explained. Would you like to tell us what happened last time on Reaper Man? Sure thing. Previously on Reaper Man. Death gets life, and with it, time to spend. Our favourite anthropomorphic personification leaves his grim domain to take up work as a reaper. Well, we all know he struggles with imagination. His absence is noted by conspicuously conspicuously undead Windle Poons, who lurches around, politely causing trouble in between his colleagues' well-meant murder attempts. Meanwhile... Dibbler discovers an anti-crime in the form of charming city snow globes and excess life force causes shenanigans to the chagrin, chagrin? Is that how you pronounce that? Why would I write it without knowing that? Of our nearly benevolent tyrant and the brothers Ridgecully. That's that. Excellent. I didn't really conclude, did it? That sounds, sounds like I wanted another sentence, but I don't have one, so. How dare you not bring an extra sentence to share with the class, Francine? <laughs> <laughs> Marvellous. So what, what's going on in, in this... Well, before that, I just want to point out, can you murder someone who's technically already dead? No, but that's why they're murder attempts, I think. Ah. Or, so, uh, what, what else would it... What, what crime do you think you would try and charge them with? Um, remurder? Uh, consensual deadnet, deadment? Um. <laughs> consensual deadment. <laughs> Bad name. 
We'll uh, call it attempted murder for now. Okay. Listeners, please write in with your ideas of horrendous crime names. <laughs> Answers on a bloodstained postcard. Or a slightly wonky albatross. <laughs> Poor thing. Right, sorry, this section of Reaper Man. Uh, Bill Dorr wakes from a confused six hours sleep to find himself bothered by a forgetful cockerel. He considers enjoying porridge before taking to the fields to scythe the hay one blade at a time. After feeding the pig, Nancy, Bill makes an effort to teach Cyril the cockerel how to crow before heading into town. As good old Bill goes to the pub, Windle Poons heads to a new club, the wizards attempt a disappointing rite of Ashkent, and Mrs Cake arrives to prematurely premonite at the Arch-Chancellor. An auditor informs the wizards that normal service will be resumed shortly. Windle has his gimlet eyes opened much further at the Fresh Start Club and narrowly escapes a mugging thanks to the efforts of new pal Lupine. The cobblestones rise to meet Windle before he heads back to the university to ponder his financial situation. As the knights draw in, Miss Flitworth invites Bildor into her parlour and we learn that the mountains can indeed be very treacherous. Death dreams for the first time and faces mortality. The pleasant monotony of chopping wood soothes him. The rats get poisoned, a chicken dies at death's hands, and Bill is comically bad at archery. Unfortunately, his attempts at this new sleep thing are rudely interrupted by a fire in the village. Windle fails to gain access to the university library and decides to take Lupin and Schleppel with him to pay a visit to Mrs Cake. As the fire in the town rages, Bildor stages a daring rescue and lends a little of his life. In the night, he begins to sharpen a scythe and talks hope with Miss Flitworth before using the new day and the harvest to take his mind off things. Modo the gardener finds a handy use for the mysterious wheel and wire contraptions appearing about the place and his compost gets a delicious meal. Mrs Cake and Windle discuss the build-up of life force and the current lack of death. Vicious trolleys and a vile bit of compost attack the senior faculty. They bravely fight them off with the aid of a little wow-wow sauce and Ridcully's talent for creative swearing begins to manifest. Bill brings in the harvest and has its first experience of scumble before meeting Ned Simnel and his combination harvester. He asks Ned to kill the now thoroughly sharpened scythe. Mrs Cake holds a seance and chats to one-man Bucket with the ragtag aid of Windle, Lupine and Ludmilla. They learn that snow globes hatched... (laughs) They learn that snow globes hatched to trolleys, but not what the trolleys will become. As the wizards face the midden heaps, Windle, Lupine and Ludmilla head to the library for a bit of history. Lupine saves them from a particularly violent trolley and laps up Ludmilla's sympathy. Very good. This is the, what's it called? Rising. Rising action. Yeah. (laughs) Rising fuckery. Uh, Yeah. I really enjoy this section. I know that the, all the big important philosophical bits are in the next section, but I do like the scene setting cropper. Yes. It is very scene setting. I think this is where we get the best of the, I didn't realise how quickly it becomes kind of the action for death for Bildor. I thought we had a bit more of him yeah. living his life as Bildor before it gets into the, right, I'm going to have to go and do things. Do you spot anything in the sky or covering a crotch? Uh, very little in the way of helicopter and loincloths, tragically. Mm-hmm. Uh, implied, though, always implied. Always, always There is always the implication of a loincloth. Uh, but on the other little bits we have been keeping track of, there's another million-to-one chance reference. Ah, where was that? Uh, so it's page 151 in mine. It's just after Death discusses the revenue with Miss Flitworth. And he's um, talking about whether or not the scythe will work. And he says, I don't know. It's a million to one chance. Aha. But it just might work. 
So that is it. I don't think either of us wrote this down, but it is a beautiful bit while he where he's um sharpening the scythe. Yeah. The whole section. Yeah. As he's finding more and more things to sharpen it on. It also made me feel guilty about the fact I haven't given my knives a good going over yet this week. Oh, yeah. You wouldn't like to know how long it's been since I honed mine. Um. Yes, if I ever, for some reason, have to come and cook in your kitchen, I'm bringing a steel and doing your knives before I start. I do have a steel. I do do them sometimes. It's not... (laughs) Remember, sharp knives are safer. Because I'm very clumsy. So, uh, quotes. Yours first. Yes. This is a short one. Bill Dorr was aware of undertones and overtones in the same way that an astronaut is aware of weather patterns below him. They're all visible, all there, all laid out for study, and totally divorced from actual experience. I like that. And this is the moment where uh, Miss Flitworth has brought Bill Dorr a hot milk drink. We're both clearly very into the dynamics of Bill Dorr and Miss Flitworth, my my quotes with them as well. Um, so when... Miss Flitworth is telling Bildor about Rufus. Mm. Um, so in, in the same scene, actually, I think it's just a little bit later. Uh, it's no, it's a slightly later scene. It's when she uh, invites him into the parlor. Ah, yes, quite right. Um, but yeah, anyway, and there's there's a lovely bit where Death finally does get a get an undertone or overtone and says, "Yes, Miss Flitworth, the mountains can be very treacherous in the winter," um, which is like. A nice little spark of friendship, I think. Yes, like he's agreeing with her. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I liked the quote. And do you know what, Bildor? Do you know what I thought? This being when... Her husband's when, gone yeah, in the yeah, When her husband's mountains. gone, basically. It was the day before we were going to be wed, like I said. And then one of his pack ponies came back by itself. And then the men went and found the avalanche. And you know what I thought? I thought, that's ridiculous. That's stupid. Terrible, isn't it? Oh, I thought other things afterwards, naturally. But the first thing was that the world shouldn't act as if it was some kind of book. Isn't that a terrible thing to have thought? I really relate to that. I love it. I, I've I, noticed I'm... this to talk about later on, but we'll talk oh, about cool. it here. It's such a good moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've noticed that in myself. Like I, I kind of pick up narrative symmetry and go ooh yeah. <laughs> like when it happens in real life and obviously it's one of those things like um like the coincidences you, you, you yeah confirmation you bias happen. thank you yeah 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 um what what did you think about it then sorry I didn't notice that you've written it down oh no it's fine it's just that reaction of god this is silly yeah for and like sake. <laughs> I've mentioned obviously on the podcast that my life's kind of caught fire a bit over the last year uh you know the specific details of it And it did definitely get to a certain point where I just looked at it and said, that's just silly. I I have looked at texts from you and gone, you are fucking kidding me. Yeah. (laughs) Like to Jack. (laughs) Obviously, I don't want to go into the details of all the ways in which my life's gone wrong. But uh, there's a few. It's been a quite frankly ridiculous year. And I was having this conversation with someone uh, last night, actually, because someone got in touch who I haven't spoken to in seven years. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, for a completely ridiculous reason, but then did the polite, how are you? Yeah. And like, so oh, well, <laughs> well. Um, so I mentioned one of the ridiculous things that happened to me and they were sort of a, oh God, you poor thing. And it's like, honestly, at this point, it's just, I'm just sort of saturated with it now to the point where I don't really need to weep and that sounds really quite depressing like when you get so wet you can't get any wetter so you don't mind yeah. walking out in the rain 
Yeah, it's sort of a, well, there's no point weeping and rending my clothes because just so many ridiculous things have happened. Yeah. I don't really waste have... Waste of good clothes. It's a waste of good clothes. I don't really have the energy. Yeah. Uh, I'll just get dehydrated and then I'll have to fill my filter jug up to pour myself more water. And that always lends to me forgetting I've just filled it up and then pouring water all over my feet. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that... that <laughs> resilience that especially comes from tough old ladies and tough old ladies who've lived on farms with smuggler farmers yeah although at the time she was a tough young lady on a oh yes um, smuggler farmer um, but it's just that well this is well, this silly is, this shouldn't happen yeah. and then uh, what life expects me to do now is moon around the place in the wedding dress for years and go completely do lally that's what it yeah. wants me to do oh yes so i put the dress in the rag bag and we still invited everyone to the wedding breakfast because it's a crime to let good food go to waste but then Pratchett did that wonderful thing a little bit later with the. She just happens to still have the yeah with the one the pure white silk. silk yeah, um, which was a gorgeous little throwback. Yeah, I, I like how he builds these walls around his characters and then just kind of shows you the chink. It's time. fantastic. It's Ar- such armor a- has a chink in it. Wall has a a, a loose brick. Shows yeah. you the loose brick. <laughs> <laughs> Mustn't mix metaphors on a. Friday, as they say. Everything about the, I'll go into it more later, but everything about the interaction with Miss Flitwith and Reeferman, I think, shows Pratchett at some of his best writing. Yeah, I think I'm being reminded as to why it's one of my favourites. And it, last time I, I waxed lyrical about the octorine uh, mm. country. Octorine grass country. Yeah, but then, yeah, rereading all of this bit, I'm like, now I, now I know why I just have this warm feeling whenever I think back. And obviously in the next section, there's a lot more of that, but I, mm. it, it, it's built up a lot more than. I remember. And I know this book so well. I've read it so many times. And yeah, every time. Just with any practice, isn't it? There are surprises, yeah. yeah. Right, should we go on to characters then? Yeah, we've got a few again. We do. Well, we're revisiting a few that we've met already. Uh, because I have things to say. Well, I look forward to hearing them. Uh, but we'll start with Cyril, the Poor dyslexic Cyril. cockerel. Poor Cyril. The forgetful <laughs> dyslexic cockerel. <laughs> I love him. He's very sweet. It's It's one of those things that oodle foodle pop it could become a heavy-handed and not very funny joke yeah and there are things pratchett has done in the past where he's put something funny in and then it's become heavy-handed and not very far- funny largely looking at the parrot from yeah. eric yeah i think he got it this time it's and it's always very well timed it it's just tends to pop up as that little bit of humor to break a bit of tension yeah it's like a like a little palate cleanser again isn't it yeah it's a lovely little moment yeah so yes, I think he's he's a good little comedy cockerel. And then obviously we have... And it, he's a nice little tool to show Death caring about his job as well. Yeah. Because Death as Bildor, like Miss Flitwick kind of mentions offhand that she wishes the cockerel would get it right and Bildor goes and threatens it. And, te- <laughs> and teaches it. Yeah. And does his best. Um, so, uh, fresh Start? Yes, the Fresh Start Club, uh, which Windle attends... Uh, which advertised, come in, come in, the Fresh Start Club, being dead is only the beginning. Fucking red shame. Uh, Speaks <laughs> of the world arise, you have nothing to lose but your chains. The silent majority want dead rights and end vitalism now. This is I've why been... Jack hates placards. He always tells me he hates placards and I do understand it. <laughs> I hate twee puns on placards. Oh, I fucking love it. I love it. And, no. I, and, and I hate it. You can tell by the sound of my voice. I'm like... I, I would enjoy writing these all day and then go and sit in self-hatred. But. It's the same reason I hate all puns. I'm not good at them. I'm not quick enough. Uh, but I did uh, do some Googling. And, and I the whole thing with the Fresh Start Club and Red Shoe, it's very 
bits of the civil rights movement and it's written very well to not take the piss out of a very important movement but to take the piss out of that one guy yes and he does it a couple times more seriously i think kind of civil rights things later on in the series so oh absolutely but uh reg is just that particular guy that we've all sort of had to put up with a bit (laughs) So yeah, Reg is probably the biggest part of this. There's a really great line when, when Windle's sort of meeting him and shaking hands and what have you. Uh, talking to Mr. Shu was very much like talking to the Arch-Chancellor. It didn't actually matter what you said because he wasn't listening. In Rigcully's case, it was because he just wasn't bothering. While Red Shu was in fact supplying your side of the conversation somewhere inside his own head. <laughs> and having attended the odd local Labour Party meeting... Well, well... <laughs> There is occasionally a little bit of... Having written up the minutes, yes. Just a tad. (laughs) Anyway. Anyway, we don't do that kind of thing anymore. We don't discuss the Labour Party. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So who else is at the meeting that we like? We've got the uh, Winkings, also known as the Count and Countess Notferatu. Oh, good. I'm glad that's how it's pronounced. I wanted you to say that. Uh, Well... Not I mean, far written, out, though. Not, not far. far out. Well, it's based on Nosferatu, hence yeah. why I'm saying not Ferratu. I think she, not far out to. Yeah, yeah. But not Ferratu is a lot. Not Ferratu is a lot easier to say. She says saying it wrong. <laughs> that all got very sibilant there. I think this is the first time we really talk to vampires on the disc. Definitely the first time we talk to them. I couldn't tell you if they've been mentioned before, but I sus- I suspect if so, only in passing. Yes. Uh we, there's a lot of, just as Moving Pictures planted a lot of seeds for this book, there are a couple of seeds being planted here that we'll be coming back to in the next book. Mm. While I love this book, I'm incredibly excited for the next book. What's next? Witches Abroad. Oh yeah, fuck yes. <laughs> We're going to see some witches. God, this is a good little run, isn't it? It's an excellent little run. Uh, so yes, the Notferatus. I love all of the stuff about vampire standards. Mm. So this is, uh, Arthur has become a vampire, having sort of inherited a large mysterious castle. Yeah. And then finding himself not dead, effectively. (laughs) (laughs) Undead, one might say. Yes. And waking up in the the church, which he's very upset that he now can't go to because he gets this pain all down his leg. (laughs) And his wife has decided to embrace vampirism alongside him but it's very much, well, we must do it the way it is done. Yes, and kind so of embracing not... the aesthetic that really doesn't suit her. And... Yes, figure-hugging black dress, long duck hair cut into a widow's peak and very pallid makeup. Unfortunately, nature had designed her to be small and, pump and plump and frizzy with a hearty complexion. It's, a, you can see it because we all knew that goth. I, I was that goth. <laughs> no, you weren't. In the nicest possible way. Okay, I'm quite pale, but I go very hearty and red-cheeked. I, I have got a bit of a peasant, ruddy peasant complexion. <laughs> I have very frizzy hair. But you look very good in a corset. Well, yes, all right, there is that. <laughs> it's not quite as bad when you get a ginger goth. You never saw me in black lipstick. Now that was unsuitable. There is a photograph somewhere that I think I've managed to remove from the internet, but still have a copy of, of me in black lipstick with my shaved head. All right. Should we both try and like find our most embarrassing goth photos? Yes, and we'll tweet them. Yeah, okay. Like Halloween present feel. I love the middle class uh, desperately trying to keep up with standards vampires. I would be 
stunned if Terry Pratchett not, did not enjoy keeping up appearances, which I know we've now mentioned several times. But um, it is very funny. And this but then is... again, keeping up appearances was based very heavily on somebody we all know in our own lives. So Yes. <laughs> there is something particular British middle class must keep up standards and appearances. Yeah. As we've said many times. Uh, so we also have Schleppel, the bogeyman, who is brilliant. Is he agoraphobic? Uh, yes, he yeah, is. that's his problem, yeah. He likes to, so he always has to be hiding beneath something or behind something. Poor little mite. Uh, we have Lupine, the who's a sort of werewolf. werewolf. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where's the description? Yeah, he go, he's technically a wolf and every full moon he turns into a wolf man. Yeah. So what's that then? A were man, I guess. Yes. What does were mean? Well, where is like, I, th- I need to look up the actual etymology, but I think that's to do with changing because as well as werewolves, there's uh, were foxes and were chickens, probably. Were foxes <laughs> are actually part of some mythologies. Were chickens I just made up, but now I'm terrified of them. <laughs> so let's have a look. Old English were is man. So it's wolf man. So he can be a werewolf. Yeah. So he is a werewolf. He just does it differently from most other werewolves. Yeah, which also, yeah, which explains why he's in the other ones as well because man, chicken, etc. Yes, and it's there's a, there's a few at the Fresh Start Club, including uh, Sister Droll, Brother Gorper, and Brother Ixalite, the shy banshee who just quietly hands a little note over saying "ooey, ooey." Oh, such a sweet little. Well, has banshee. he got a stutter or something? Is he? Uh, I think it's so. Too shy to speak. Yeah, <laughs> one of those two. And then, and then moving up country. Moving back to Octorine Grass Country around Bildor, we've got the town folk. And I want to start with the little girl because she's great. We do like the ridiculous little children in these books. Ridiculous little child who can completely see that death is a skeleton. Yes. And everyone else is yes, just. It's a skeleton. Look, he's got all bones. <laughs> yeah. And then she finally approaches him. You are a skeleton, aren't you? I can tell because of the bones. You are mistaken, small child. You are. People turn into skeletons when they're dead. They're not supposed to walk around afterwards. Ha, 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 will you hark at the child? (laughs) But then eventually he gives up on trying to pretend he's not a skeleton and she sort of goes, why don't you fall to bits? I don't know, I never have. It's like, oh, so you're kind of like a a living skeleton kind of... Can I just say right now, can we petition for skeleton to be the word? Because it's much better. Skeleton is a great word. But I also like that she realises that someone in the village has a dead skeleton. What was inside someone? Yes. Yuck. The child (laughs) stared distantly at the landscape for a while and then said, I've got new socks. And I love kids because these are these sort of uh, conversations that happen. Like this happens with my little five-year-old nephew. I've got new socks. Do you know? It's Friday. Yeah. I found a spoon. <laughs> Except with, in my nephew's case, like each of these sentences is prefaced with Auntie Joe, Auntie Joe. Oh, he loves you. He is an excellent small child. So yeah, I love the little girl. Uh, and then we've got the rest of the town folk who uh, oh, build. All very old. All very old. Good old Bill goes to the pub with them. We get some names. Good old Bill. Good old Bill. We've got uh, William Spigot, Gabby Wheels, Duke Bottomley. I particularly like Gabby Wheels for the sound of it. Yeah. Called uh, Gabby because he's very quiet. Bill Dorr doesn't quite get that, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> there were young men in the 
they were young men and women in the village, but at a certain age, they seemed to flip straight over to being old without passing through any intermediate stage. And they stayed old for a long time. Now that's what working in the fields will do for you. Yes. You become an old man, but then you sort of stick. I do know some marvellous old people that seem to have been old all their life, but incredibly tough and will not stop. Yes. I'm thinking largely of my Catholic grandmother, who I think is mostly alive out of spite and stubbornness. <laughs> How's she doing? She's okay at the moment. She's good. I spoke to her the other day. I was asking her advice on planting daffodils and she said, shove them in the pot, put the earth on them and forget about them. Stop fretting. Yeah, that's pretty much it with bulbs. Yep. <laughs> that was a nice bit of reassurance. And then we get one of my favourite little character intro oh, moments. Yeah. The death of rats. Oh. This little tiny six inch skeletal rat with a little tiny scythe. I like how it kind of flickered through the possible death of rats before settling on that one. Like it could yes. have been a little terrier or what was the other thing? A bit of cheese or... Or some sort of trap. Yeah. But then I don't know whether he's like insinuating that rats are very close to human, maybe. I mean, that's true. Rats are... Well, we'll talk about Pratchett and rats and all yeah. sorts of things. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they're the resilient live everywhere species like us, aren't they? Yes, they very much so. always and yeah. I just like the professional courtesy of death giving him a little piece of cheese. Yeah, yeah here, here you are, sir. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, yeah, we've also got Ned Simnel. Sorry. Fucking Simnel? Isn't Ned it? Simnel. Right? Yeah. I, I genuinely didn't notice that until this read-through. Yes. So Ned Simnel is uh, working... Bollocks to first-time readers, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> just, It's quite cool to see this name here, first-time yeah, yeah. readers. <laughs> So he's working in the blacksmith, but he's building some kind of ridiculous machinery. Yeah, and um, he's talking about clockwork and things and wondering how to self-propel his machinery. And then a kettle boils over and distracts him, which is quite funny because obviously it's hinting at the idea of steam power, which just never occurs to him. Yes, which is marvellous and might, uh, again, might, might come back up. But yeah, he's the kind of vague mechanic that... We all know and love again in our lives. It's amazing it's how we managed to pin down recurring characters throughout real life. Doesn't it? Like, we all know that person who's mechanic but quite into making stuff and tends to always look slightly to the left of your ear when they're talking to you because they're having an idea. Yeah, when I worked on the Land Rover magazine, I knew several of those. They used to write for us. Um, fucking incredibly intelligent men. Uh, and some of them were very personable, but some of them just had no interest in talking to you about anything but land yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I have a tendency to really, really think things through when I start working on them. Weirdly less so with writing, but more with making things. Mm. Which means I will... I ha it was noticed by a friend I was spending some time with a few weeks ago that I suddenly went really quiet. For probably like two or three days, I kept go lapsing off into really quiet things. And it was just because I was thinking about how to design a certain necklace. Yeah. And I had to think it through and then I had to get it out on paper before I could pick up the wires and stuff and start making this necklace. This is what I'm trying to learn to do with painting because I'm the same. If I'm building something practical, I will try and think it through first. Mm. But um, I'm so, – and I can with writing actually because because I have to write nonfiction articles obviously. Yeah, you have to plan those. To but with painting, I've been doing too much of the just like happy accident style of painting. I'm yeah. like, right now, come on. You know to build something good, you need to think it through. So, yeah. See, with writing, I find if I tend to, because I don't write a lot of nonfiction, what I tend to write is like yeah. prose and theatre. and Creative writing. Theatre, sometimes I will do a bit of planning first because I 
I'm aiming to get from A to B. Yeah, yeah. But I find, especially with prose and with poetry, I get too intimidated by thinking about it first. And because I can't figure it out where it ends, I don't start. So I have to just write and have you trust about that I will find an ending. Trying to write a chapter in the style of theatre then and then adapting it back. I have. Well, I kind of end up doing that anyway. I forget okay. to put any kind of tags in, in dialogue, because yeah. I write a scene. Spill. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but especially with the with the novel I'm working on, I, I still have no idea how this novel is going to end. I'm still very much in the world building stage of writing it. And if I, I like start... imagining you writing it and then just one day like writing the ending and going, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> that will be how it happens. <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry, fucking uh, got a bit distracted there. So yeah, so Ned Simnel, he is that person we all know who uh, is constantly thinking about how to do something and make something. Mm. And then one last, this isn't really a uh, character, this is a throwaway line, but I want to point it out, especially because what we were talking about. Um, we had, uh, this is the senior wrangler talking, we uh, we don't need to, we can get over most things. Rats, remember the last rats last year? Vesinari wouldn't listen to us, no, he played that glib bugger in the red and yellow tights a thousand per cold pieces to get rid of them. It worked though, said the lecturer in recent rooms. Of course it bloody worked, said the Dean. It worked in Querm and Stolat as well. He'd have got away with it in Pseudopolis if someone hadn't recognised him. Mr. So-called Amazing Roris and his educated rodents. Again, just like with Ned Seminole, I didn't realise it got referenced this early. So we'll come back to that in 17 books time. (laughs) Plus all the other books we're going to do in the meantime. (laughs) Been there. I'm not going to remember that we had this conversation. So you've got Rid Cully down. Have we seen some character development or...? There's just a couple of little moments involving Ridcully that I like. The first of which is uh, when they're right at the beginning of this section, or very near the beginning of this section, they're stomping back from having seen the patrician. Yes. And he says, who is he going to call? Oh. Which, uh, little Ghostbusters. Oh, yeah, I didn't even notice that one. The, like, pop reference I saw was... uh... Uh, don't stand in the doorway. Don't block up the hall. On the <sighs> Fresh Start Club, Bob Dylan. Ah, uh, <laughs> times they I are changing. Com- that that one went totally in my head, and I missed it. So between us, we've done quite well here. Yeah. Who are you going to call? We probably missed like ninety. <laughs> Who are you going to call? No one. I have anxiety. <laughs> uh, there's another Rid Cully moment though that I really like. Uh, which is uh, page 99 in my version. The Arch-Chancellor was not the kind of man who takes a special pleasure in being brusque and rude to women. Or, to put it another way, he was brusque and rude to everyone, (laughs) regardless of sex, which was equality of a sort. I'm not sure if I'm saying brusque right there. Brusque? Brusque, brusque, I think brusque. Okay, we're going with brusque because I've already said it twice now. The thing is, I really love this because it would be so easier to make Rid Cully sexist. Uh, look at drum billet and cut angle and treatle from equal rights. Yeah, almost every senior wizard we've come across so far has this sort of weird low level of sexism that mostly comes from the fact that they don't really speak to women. Because yeah. apart from Mrs. Whitlow, 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 and I really like that it'd be so easy to make easy to make this character a sexist dickhead. And in early books, that's what Pratchett did. Obviously, in equal rights, that's kind of the point. The characters are sexist yeah, yeah. dickheads. Uh, but he doesn't. He makes him a character who is a bit of a dick to everyone, but doesn't. Re- but thinks of everyone as pretty much on the same scale. But he lived think- at home for a long time, didn't he? So that probably helped. He wasn't just in this environment. No. 
uh, that, like from a within the fictional world, there's lots of good reasons for him to not be a sexist dickhead. Yeah. But from a reader perspective and from, I think, the whole Terry Pratchett writing perspective, I think it's really good that he has kind of expanded the realm of characters he writes. Definitely progress. Yeah, rather than just writing the same wizard again and again, basically. Yes. So that was a happy purple post-it moment. Hey. Oh, yeah, we haven't had any purple post-its for a while, have we? No, I haven't. Are we getting less woke or is Pratchett getting more woke? I was about to start seeing flying purple people eater, so I feel oh, like so. I'm not For God's sake, he was getting these fucking songs in my head today. I'm great at I'm it. I'm going to make a remix of Combine Harvester and Flying Purple People Eater just to fuck with you. I mean, that'll make me really happy. Please PCM? do that. I don't think they do. Anywho. Uh, Mrs. Flitworth. So we already talked about her tragic backstory and why I absolutely love that. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to talk about her parlour. Oh, do. Because this is such an That's odd room. location. <laughs> It is almost a location, but because I had a few things to say about Miss Flitworth, I, put, I thought I'd put it all in one place. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it is such an odd room. And again, I think this is a somewhat British thing. Uh, so she has this big, huge kitchen that she with this massive table. Yeah. And that's where she lives. That's where she cooks and it's warm. And that's where they sit and they eat breakfast and they eat meals. Yeah, that's the kitchen I want one day. But she invites him to come and sit in the house of an evening. And says she's got a fire. And he gets there slightly too soon and, f- soon and finds her lighting the fire in the yeah. parlour. And she sort of embarrassingly explains, well, it's not worth right- lighting it just for me. Yeah. And they sit in this room and it is this dead room yeah. with things everywhere. Yeah. It is, it's, it's this room that's only used for best. And it would be so much more comfortable in the kitchen, but that just doesn't seem right. No. Um there's uh, ornaments almost concealed the furniture, but this was no loss. Uh, apart from two chairs groaning under the weight of accumulated anti-macassars, the rest of the furniture... Anti-macassars, they're like a weird chair covery thing. Oh. Uh, I really should have prepared myself for reading this because I have no idea if I'm saying that right. <laughs> the rest of the furniture seemed to have no use whatsoever apart from supporting ornaments. There were spindly tables everywhere. It smelled of long, dull afternoons. Those tables make me so anxious. Little tables covered in ornaments. I've, yeah. I've been in places like that. I have known people who were like that, who have a have a parlour that is for best mm-hmm. and has ornaments everywhere, mm-hmm. and it's horrible. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. a particular kind of cluster that makes me very claustrophobic. And I think because I was in there as like a child, it's kind of it brings up that very intense feeling of boredom and. It's a combination of boredom and fear. Yeah. Because we've been in them in child, we've been told you absolutely mustn't touch anything and you yeah. cannot accidentally destroy auntie or grandmother's favourite ornament. Yes. It's one of those strange things, you know, kitchens with big tables that you can lounge around at and a parlour for best that you are on your best behaviour in. Yeah. Absolutely. And then this is Flitworth making a particular kind of foray into, I don't think romance so much as friendship with Bill Yeah, Dore, yeah that it's She it. has it's invited platonic... him into the... Yeah, she's trying to start a platonic relationship of some description. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and then this great moment where she bustles in with a loaded tray, a blur of activity as she performed the alchemicables, a ceremony of making tea, buttering scones, arranging biscuits, hooking sugar tongs on the basin. Mm-hmm. She Accidentally sat back. summoned a demon. <laughs> yeah, always happens. She sat back. Then, as if she had been in a state of repose for 20 minutes, she trilled slightly breathlessly. Well, isn't this nice? It's so realistic. It's so good. <sighs> Well, isn't this nice? And it yeah. is always said after. <laughs> it is always said after the t- the tea things have been performed. 
Jack's grandma had a saying, and it wouldn't wouldn't just be this; it would be like wherever they were. Just uh, aren't we lucky today? And I love that. And I That's try and say really that now. Lovely. Yeah. Aren't we? Lucky oh, today? I really like that. My grandma says that a lot. Just in oh, aren't we lucky? Whenever we do anything nice, but I just like the random. Aren't we lucky today? That's really quite <laughs> sweet. I love that. Yeah, I might try and adopt that into my lexicon. Oh, do. We'll make it a thing. But she also says, oh, I don't have occasion to open up the parlour these days. And it's, mm. it's not just using a room, it's opening up a room. Yeah, it's like if the vicar came around or yes. you were meeting somebody for the first time, whoever it was, you'd probably bring them there. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's. I, I do wonder what the equivalent is in different countries. I'm sure we'll have them. But Yes, and then I also, I like her when death slash Bildor is trying to explain who the auditors are mm. and she's sort of picks up you mean like the revenue the revenue the revenue my father always made me promise never to help the revenue even just thinking about the revenue made him want to go and have a lie down the the revenue for anybody unfamiliar is uh, basically a tax inspector yes gonna come come around and make sure you've been paying your taxes and when you haven't because you're a random farm out in the middle of nowhere that doesn't benefit from any kind of civic pay-in system you uh, throw them in the pond apparently Yes, which is only a few inches deep. But it was fun watching them find out. And it kind of strengthens the bond again, doesn't it? Yes, it gives them something They've got some kind of common enemy, even if it's really... Yes, she's also gone from slightly suspicious of him, understandably, to determined to help. Yes. And then we have Ludmilla. Yeah, so there's a lovely little scene where we get just more of a description of Ludmilla and Mrs. Cake. Yeah. Uh, so Wendell originally assumes Ludmilla is Mrs. Cake as she opens the door and then works it out. Mm. Uh, she was big, but not in the sense of being fat. She was just built to a scale slightly larger than normal. Sort of person who goes through life crouching slightly and looking apologetic in case they inadvertently loom. I know one person who is quite big, but quite short, but is so such a force of personality that it feels like I'm being towered over in yeah. a very friendly way. Inadvertently loom is a good one, isn't it? inadvertent looming uh so that's ludmilla mrs cake's daughter who has her own relationship to the full moon (laughs) windle's little kind of background matchmaking is a lovely part of this actually yeah yeah for sure i'm trying to work out what the word for ludmilla would be if we know that where now means man so it's not a semi-werewolf it's a where semi-wolf yeah, let's go with that. Semi-detached wolf. <laughs> nice semi-detached wolf in the suburbs. <laughs> As opposed to a terraced wolf. Far too noisy. <laughs> Mrs. Cake appeared around the side of her daughter like a small moon emerging from a planetary shadow. <laughs> it's a fantastic sentence. I, I nearly put this as its own character, which is Mrs. Cake's hat. I, I again, thought you might, but... Uh, she wore it at all times with the dedication of a wizard. It was huge and black and had things on it, like bird wings and wax cherries and hat pins. Carmen Miranda could have worn that hat to the funeral of a continent. And Mrs. Cake travelled under it as the basket travels under a balloon. Carmen Miranda being a ooh, Brazilian actress? I would like to say Brazilian. South American, definitely. Yeah. Um, in the mid-last century, who wore incredibly fancy fruit hats in her yes. American films. <laughs> and she would do the dance. She would. That's probably very problematic looking back most things are really quite problematic <laughs> looking not back, look back. <laughs> don't look back very rinsed um 
So yes, that's us. Don't look back. It's problematic and or deadly. (laughs) It's problematic and deadly. So yeah, I just like the little descriptions of them there. Obviously, they are fun characters. I and I still love Mrs. Cake. She goes into the category of uh, Nanny Og and Sybil, and larger than life older women who are very determined and get their own way. Yes, but in a very different way to Granny Weatherworks. Yes, it's a lot more foreground. Yes. Granny Weatherwax likes to have her way from the background. I now cannot remember if we ever get to see Granny Weatherwax meeting Mrs. Cake. I don't think we do. If we do, I don't think we do. I, I, I wouldn't be shocked if they did, but I, I don't remember it. But we um, shall watch for that. So, locations. Yes, yeah, so got... where are these people that we've just talked about? Well, obviously, Ankh Pork and the University and the Fresh Start Club and all that happen. The town, which mm. continues unnamed, this is the town closest to the farm, Bill, where Bill goes for his uh, for his pint and his archer in the field. Yeah. And it's a village; it's not a town, yeah. but, but it's, it's the sort of the place closest. where a hub. Yeah, yeah. It's the sort of place where, if you lived on the outskirts of it, you would call it going to town. And there are. Do you know that Old bloody modernate through in so many words? Hub is one of them. Hub always brings up something to do with software in my mind now. And earlier I was trying to look up the li- the life cycle of things and I mm. kept getting fucking terms of like the life cycle of an app or something. Was, no, for God's sake, I want to look up fish. <laughs> <laughs> but I love, uh, so the town goes unnamed. Yes. We know it's Octarine Grass Country. We know it's probably one of those places that has sprung up because there's a few farms and they, everyone needs somewhere to meet up in the middle. Yeah, it's quite an interesting decision for him to leave it un- unnamed because he does take joy in naming all these Yes, Ohulan. Yeah, Ohulan Katash and Badass and yeah. um, Scrope. But it, yeah, he doesn't want to kind of pin it down to a name because that would shape almost how it would be in someone's imagination. Am I making sense or am I right? You no, know, you absolutely do. But it does... Talking. It reminds me of those small... Yeah, I uh, fairly recently drove through the village I grew up in. Oh, yeah. Well, I wanted to go for a walk at this um, like lovely nature reserve that was I knew was only a couple of miles out from the village. So that was a lovely little moment. It's a very, very sweet little village that doesn't have a lot apart from, you know, a pub and a shop and a church. Yeah. Those are the three things that make a village. Uh, and then we have... This is not a place we go to, but it's a throwaway reference. Yeah. Uh, talking about how daylight happened to slosh across the world and on the fabled hidden continent of XXXX, somewhere near the rim, there is a lost colony of wizards who wear corks around their pointy hats and live on nothing but prawns. (laughs) There, the light is still wild and fresh as it rolls in from space and they surf on the boiling interface between night and day. See, again, I love that he clearly just gave himself a little brain tickle there, which came back later on. We'll come back eventually. Yeah. Just in a little, again, throwaway joke and then... But also it's it it's fleshing out the world, you know. It obviously yeah. cares for me. Okay, so I have Ankh-Moor Pork and that sort of... And Octarine Grass Country and that's all a bit English. And we have Clatch and uh, other areas we've been to and we've been around the rim. If we have all of that, there must be somewhere near the rim surrounded by ocean that probably is a bit Australian around the ears. Yes, Absolutely. And then the other place that gets mentioned I wanted to notice is the High Energy Magic Building at the university. It's a little bit CERN, isn't it? It is, this is where the younger, skinnier, bespectacled wizards hang out, uh, wanting Taumic particle accelerators and radiation 
radiation shielding. They're searching for the elementary particles of magic itself. Well, it's the Large Hadron Collider, isn't it? Yeah. Kind of so the senior wizards that had been started building in 1991, but that's uh, the young specky wizards looking at uh, the very nature of magic, while the yeah. senior wizards are sort of like, well, our main priority here is dinners yes they've gone through magic they've come out the other side and now they don't really care how it all works which again is a shift in the wizards from yeah. equal rights but uh we might get to visit the high energy magic building again we might we might there's so much set up in this book there is and again unless i was looking for it all i'd probably just skim over it because i know the disc world so yeah the world is getting bigger and more detailed and it's exciting right uh, right so should we quick break yeah, orange slices or coffee, depending on preference. Well, I used all the orange on pancakes, so it's going to have oh, to be coffee. I want pancakes. Hi. Hi. Once again, tried to make my coffee without adding coffee to it. Good, good. Yeah, just <laughs> as uh, just as where we're at. This week I've done a lot of putting coffee in cup, building, building? Putting boiling kettle, kettle on, boiling kettle, and wandering off. And then coming back an hour later going, oh, I want coffee. It's like, ah, I see I've been here before. <laughs> <laughs> now, Watson, tell me about the mind of this individual. Well, I've just opened the microwave and there's a cold coffee in there from yesterday. So, <laughs> oh, damn it. We're dealing with a very deranged person. <laughs> or a slightly tired and forgetful person who clearly needs more coffee. Yeah, exactly. Uh, right, where are we? We're doing no a idea. podcast, aren't we? Uh, yeah, hopefully. Hmm. Well, that's what if we've not, been doing so far. I'm not really sure why we've got all this nonsense printed out in front of us. Again, I'm still paperless, apart from my post-it filled book. So the first few little bits we liked are yours. The first one was the almanac. Uh-huh. Miss Flitworth's only reading matter was the Farmer's Almanac and Seed Catalogue, which could last a whole year in the privy if no one was ill. This is sort of a running joke in the Discworld books that lots uh-huh. of people have almanacs as toilet paper. So they'll have an almanac for a year and then it moves to the privy for a year. Yeah, I wonder if how much basis there is in that um because again Pratchett like overlaps that generation that everyone had outdoor toilets um in in the uk the privy generation the us had them a little bit sooner than we did uh, indoor toilets as standard but yeah uh, so i i did look up almanacs a bit and they've existed i'll go into the nature of almanacs and the printing of almanacs a bit more in a later book because we see a bit more behind the curtain with the printing of them. Yeah. But they they were these calendars that existed for farmers that would have things like when to plant certain things, predicted weather patterns over a year. Yeah. They've existed as far back as I think like the 12th century, possibly even earlier. But Yeah, I mean, yeah, because a lot of the observations were made by monks to start with, weren't they? Uh, mm. So yeah, that would make it sense was, around there. Yeah monks in rural communities it was it was mostly the availability of paper that made them a general thing which also you know uh adult illiteracy was not as common as i think people seem to believe in the sort of medieval times i think there was a lot of writing illiteracy but reading literacy so a lot of people could read and not write yeah um especially women i don't know mm. that but yeah. it was quite often necessary for people to at least know some of their letters for the sake of things like almanacs. But I mostly wanted to point this out uh, because... So also, um, almanacs do exist in modern day is the other thing. Hmm. There are certain companies that produce almanacs that have things about sort of things like sporting awards yeah. and 
general seasonal things. There's a like a Canadian almanac that covers lots of important events. They're, they're effectively very detailed calendars. I'd have to see if we can get our hands on some cool, either vintage or modern ones for later on. Yeah, because they, they sort of yeah. fell out of popularity and then had a bit of a resurgence in, I think, like 18th or 19th century. And then yeah. now there is like a modern version of them. There's less, there are, I mean, there are farmer's almanacs as well still. More of that Victorian nostalgia, basically. Yeah. But I mostly wanted to point this out for the... Uh, so in addition to sober information about phases of the moon and seed sowings, it took a certain grisly relish in recounting the various mass murders, vicious robberies and natural disasters that befell mankind. Along the lines of June 15th, year of the impromptu stoat. On this day, 150 years, it's a man killed by freak shower of goulash and quirm. Or 14 die at hands of Chew, the notorious herring thrower. But the important thing is that all of these things happened a very long way away. And the only thing that happens locally, really, is the sort of occasional theft of a chicken. You can believe anything happened, provided it happened a long way away or a very long time ago. Yeah, that's it. And unusual things happening was part of the Discworld life. Uh, yes. So it was in some villages, it was quite odd when you didn't get your herring rain or something. But then, yeah, yeah it kind of underlines how normal this town is as well. Abnormally yes, normal. It's an extra normal trail. Yeah. Uh, and just another little thing I like that I'm throwing in now is that on the following page, at least in my edition, is when Bill uh, gets his overalls and his broad-brimmed straw hat. Yay! That he is so lovingly depicted in on the front cover. Uh, another thing I really like, and this is another sort of running Discworld joke, is uh, the right of Ash Kent yeah. being simplified. And uh, Rid Cully sort of, uh, well, actually, you can do it with three bits of wood and four cc of mouse blood. Yes, we know. And in fact, you don't even do that. You can do it with one bit of wood and an, and an egg. It just has to be a fresh egg. Which is the, as the more and more this ritual where they summon the Grim Reaper yeah. gets mentioned, the more and more simple it turns out to be. Because really, he'll just pop in if you ask. He's quite reasonable, really. Yeah. I like the I like the fact that the wizards are like yes, but it's not it's not the point just because you can yeah. <laughs> just because you can doesn't mean you should it should be candles and drama yeah and I agree to a certain extent part part of me of course as the vicious sub editor does like to make things as simple and elegant as possible mm. but I do have a certain respect for the baroque 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 I'm all over the place today and I <laughs> but I mean yeah struggling. I. I am a big fan of candles, drama, robes, and muttering. I know. But I, I quite like the idea of wizards carrying a handy little uh, few bits of wood and a few cc of mouse blood just yeah. in case they need to do the rite of Ash Kent on the go. <laughs> it's a, yeah, everyday carry for your magic community. I like the idea yeah. of that. We could riff off that. <laughs> <laughs> and now for a note. No, I didn't actually write a note from our sponsors because the idea just occurred to me and I'm not doing improv. No, that's the kind of comedy that you really need to be a certain type to be good at. Oh, yeah, improv, not my thing. Uh, and then one of the other things I really love is uh, when the Arch-Chancellor's swearing starts to physically appear. Yeah. And I love it, A, because, again, I love Rid Curley's character and the idea that he is so vital, he is so full of life, mm -hmm. that it makes even his swear words manifest when there's this excess of life force flying around. He really fucking means them. <laughs> yes, and the thing is, it's his swearing that does it, but it's very mild swearing. Yeah, it's like damn or something, wasn't it? Or yeah, it's damn and bugger and midden. That's all you get in Discworld, isn't it? It's, you get the very occasional shit, I think. Okay. Put that I, in your I don't, 
yeah. I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember the word fuck ever being used in the Discworld. No, I don't think it is. Certainly not the C word. Definitely not the C word. We don't even use that in this podcast. Yes, that was the. Uh, I think I someone did think ask. So. I don't think I've let one slip through. No, someone did ask in a review once what had been bleeped out, and I think I don't remember if we addressed on the podcast that it was me using the C word. <laughs> I sounded so shocked, like I'd never heard it, but I think it was just in context. <laughs> this is. I, I don't. Uh, I don't mind the word personally, unless it's used in a very vitriolic way. Um, yeah, no. But I do I, I, recognize that a lot of people see it as a quite violent, misogynistic slur. And so I'm happy not to use it in in public, and this counts as public. Uh, yeah. I use it quite a lot, but in the very British way of you sort of use it the same way you use mate. Yeah. I I, but I would, I, I would only. Cabinet usually. Well, yes. <laughs> I would also only use it around other people who I know are comfortable. Exactly so, yeah. But this is what I love about Red Cully swearing manifesting, yeah. is that he is someone who swears so artfully and passionately that it can. Yes. And there are some people who are like that who are, who swear and it doesn't seem crash, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like it's for the attention. It is just they swear like breathing. It's like uh letting off pressure from a pot. Yes. Just a little And I I love that sort of swearing. Yeah, same. Especially as I, you know, we use it as punctuation. It's not as effective. It appalls my. So I work in a kitchen as well. Yeah, uh, a lot of swearing happens in kitchens. Uh, yeah. I work with some lovely Polish people, so we're I can we all swear in multiple languages. I'm trying to cut back a bit, believe it or not, if you listen to this podcast, because I do listen back to us occasionally, and I'm frankly appalled at our at our lack of decorum. But <laughs> not that I think we should be ladylike or anything. I just think that as people who ostensibly have had at least two coffees we should be able to think of synonyms but <laughs> <laughs> i know but sometimes a well-placed fuck does the does the job <laughs> but yes but my head chef and i think it's part of it is the fact that he's canadian is very polite and doesn't like a lot of swearing Ooh. and i have to be i have to restrain myself a bit around him he'll pick up on it if i'm swearing too much i say uh anyway back from that tangent yo Yo, this starts... Come on, Bursa, I'll try and keep up. <laughs> this whole little scene is lovely. This is uh, when the the senior faculty decide they're going to have to take action and sort of try and kick butt a bit. And this is specifically why I love the Dean as a character, who, as you, as we remember, was... He was rather poetic at the end of moving pictures, but he's also the one who gets caught up in ideas. So he sort of uh, gets into the grip of a wild, unwizardly machismo. He does With get me. very into things. He gets very, very into things. In this, they're sort of going into some American action movie stereotypes. He's like, yeah, we're mean. Yeah, are we mean? And then, of course, you have the wizards going, are we mean? I'm reasonably mean. That's all right. I'll be mean if, I'll be mean if everyone else is. <laughs> the Arch-Chancellor turns back and goes, yes, it appears we are all mean. <laughs> it kind of takes yeah. the wind out of your sails a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And the dean says, Yo! And uh, when they're asking what the yo means, senior anger, which means it's a general street greeting and affirmative with convivial military in-group and masculine bonding ritual overtones. What? Like jolly good? Well, I suppose so. Senior wrangler. <laughs> I think I'm laughing at senior wrangler because he's a bit like us. Mm. Oh, well, actually, do you know the etymology? I've, I've got a PowerPoint presentation with me as it happens. Uh, <laughs> Speaking of, I did look up the etymology of yo. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, 
I couldn't find a lot. I, I'll link to a couple of things in the show notes. I'm guessing it's uh, one thing I stole from the Black American community, is it? No. Well, that, it's really hard to prove where it came from. It possibly existed much longer than really much in the way of recorded language, oh, because it's right. just an easy. It is a sound that a human would make. Me throwing around assumptions. Uh, there is evidence for it within, obviously, AAVE, uh-huh. uh, African American Vocal English, Verbal English. Vernacular? I forget what the V stands for. Vernacular English. Th- yes, thank you. Uh, and there's a very good episode of You're Wrong About that goes into uh, AAVE and its oh, I the love that, bonics yeah. controversy, which is a subject that generally fascinates me. But yeah, a common, as, a, as an expression of alarm or an expression of greeting, it has just a very long history. It's also the Yiddish word for yes, I learned from Reddit. Is that so? Yes, from r slash etymology, had a couple of little threads That's on it. That's r slash etymology? How have I not found that? You linked me to it. Well, I then made a new account and completely forgot it was there. Fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's great. There's lots read of... it all the time for me. Yeah, yeah, it's vernacular English, just double checked. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, African-American vernacular English. Uh, it has had uh, use in the US military as recently as the 20th century as a response in roll calls, etc. Hmm. Um, like yo-yo? So, was sort of a name yo name yo oh i see see that just sounds yeah. so weird now doesn't it <laughs> it does it does it uh there's oh, sort of some subscribe to our etymology excellent why does it never hit my front page this is bullshit oh, sorry carry on <laughs> damn algorithms so it's sort of uh i know there's evidence of it being used in say the vietnam war like in roll calls and things yep. u.s military so there is some debate over whether it found its way into AAVE from the military or whether it was AAVE first and appropriated. Uh, And it looks like it sort of swung backwards and forwards but has existed in various versions throughout history as as some kind of greeting or call. Interesting. I think it's settled down now pretty casually, hasn't it? It is now, yeah, a very casual term. In an official capacity, Roy. No, but it is a weird thing because it does kind of mean affirmative but also hello, but also... Yeah, it's like, like it's, it's like a more forceful "all right" in Britain. Yeah, yeah, you're sort of, all right. Yo. It's hello and affirmative yeah. and everything here in Britain, but it's a bit airy. You're right. Anyway, next city life cycles. I rather I know I mentioned this last time in the form of what was it? Brood parasites. Um, yes, but I like how that's developing. Um, and so the, the egg the stage here is the snow globe, and then it turns into the mobile stage, which is the the trolley, the shopping trolley. Yeah, and this could like refer to any number of life cycles. This is what I was trying to Google earlier when the apps were in my way. Um, but there are lots of species that have kind of a, a mobile stage before then settling somewhere um, in mm. plant and animal. But I was because snow globes aren't really a thing anymore. Um, yeah, they've fallen out of fashion. It's got so you're wondering sort of what the egg could be now and yeah. what the mobile stage could be now. For a mobile stage of a city, I quite like the idea because it's got to be useful. So I quite like the idea of like a a bag for life, like flying around in the wind or something. Oh, that's good. I like that. For the egg stage, I don't. It's sort of be something that people would pick up and that they would want to keep. Yeah, this is and it. And bring home and put in their house. I quite like the idea of it being those teddy bears you win at uh, fairground stalls. Oh yeah. That's because fun. you do keep them because it's not just a teddy bear. There's a memory attached to the teddy bear. Yeah. And then and you're selecting fair... for people who are going to put it somewhere safe as well, aren't you? Yes. And a travelling fair is quite a good way to mm. plant these eggs around various places. Oh, yes. I like that. Okay. Yes. We'll go with that then. Uh, fairground teddy bear that goes into 
bag Back flying around in the wind. We're not going to talk about how many plastic bags I have in my cupboard. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> and then Should we get on to the on big the, stuff? The major talking points. Yeah. Which so said the delineation between the two is getting blurrier and blurrier, but I quite like it that way. Well, I'm, I've kept this for the more metaphysical, thoughtful stuff as opposed to things I had to Google. Ah, uh, see, I've got the page of notes things here. But that makes quite ah. a nice mix, I think. So. Yeah. I want to start with the two big moments for me in this book, which oh, yeah. are both moments between Death and Miss Flitworth. God, it's a good dynamic. It's such a good dynamic. I mean, these two moments really cement to me why this is objectively one of the best Discworld books. Oh, so it's not. Yes. It's not necessarily one of my top ones because uh-huh. my top is taken over by other things that aren't other people's favourites. Yeah. But it is objectively one of the best books and it is because of moments like this. Uh, and the first one being page 137 in my edition, when the fire is happening and they realise that the girl is still in the pub. Yeah. And the brandy barrels are about to go and Miss Flitworth is insisting that we should try and save her. And yeah. Well, I, I would say death rather than Bill Dora is saying... Yeah. We shouldn't. To tinker the, with the fate of one individual could destroy the whole world. There is a time for everyone to die. And she slaps him and says, you leave my farm tonight then. It's fantastic because it's, it, it's almost, death is being brought back to the forefront of this dual personality by, by, by a question that's in, in, integral to his job. Yes, absolutely. So it, it makes sense that death would then come back out and then... Miss that slap Flitworth. brings back the buildor of him. Yeah, and it's the very core of Miss Flitworth being offended by it. Mm. It is exactly who she is as a person yeah. that you do not just stand there and say shit like that when you could be helping. And then I feel like that's practice anger being channeled through Miss Flitworth there as well as the incredibly hot sense of what is right and wrong. Mm. And Abs- don't try and logic your way around it. You know what is right. Yes. And it's it's also possibly quite the first time death is in our Discord depth has had to confront humanity yeah. and deal with humans in a way he hasn't really since Mort, and he's completely yeah. different here. In Mort, although he tries to experience more of humanity while Mort does the job, he still holds himself very separate from it. Yes. And he still thinks of himself as not very human to the point where when he starts losing the things that he sort of has powers of as an anthropomorphic personification, he gets very upset and embarrassed by it when he suddenly can't walk through a wall. Yes, it's very touristy. Yeah. Um, this is- and he's also, when he is confronted with Mort's humanity and has to deal with his mess, he's very vengeful and angry. You know, he fights him. Yeah, yeah, it is definitely embarrassment turning to anger, isn't it, in that bit? And then... Here, yeah, it's and he's genuinely a duel in his own head. Yeah, he's he's fighting his human nature as opposed to someone else's human nature. Yeah. Uh, and that slap brings the human nature to the forefront. Yeah, that's a fucking hell of a grand gesture then that puts him back in the good books. Well, exactly. It's not just that he then realises he might be wrong and bring his humanity comes back to the forefront, but that he then does the thing. He saves the yeah. girl and gives her some of his life so she can keep going until he can yeah. fix everything. And ironically, he ends to fix everything. He has to put his humanity to one side again. Yeah. And so what's the second of these moments? This is a, this is a smaller moment, uh, but it's a really lovely one. Uh, and this is all going to get very depressing on my end now. All right, I've got some frivolous things afterwards. Excellent. This is 
uh, Death receives the badly written note of the Banshee. Yes. Uh, which means he is about to die. And the new death is coming for him. He's going to be the first and everything's going to be terrible. And he's trying to sharpen this scythe so he can yeah. fight the new death. Yeah. And uh, I keep saying Flitwick, I've just realised that. I'm sorry. Yeah, oh, it's <laughs> fine. It's an easy thing to do, especially from the Potter generation. Yeah. Uh, fuck turfs. Um, Miss Flitworth says, come on, man, there's no sense giving in. When there's life, eh? And he's obviously not heard the saying. He says, when there's life, there's what? And she says, there's hope. And he says, is there? She says, right enough. And and that's enough to give him hope. Yeah. It occurs to him, yes, when there's life, there's hope. But it's such an old saying. Yeah, it's one of those, again, things that you don't think to question until you look at it through the eyes of a... Anthropomorphic personification. Yeah, <laughs> which one so rarely has the course to do. The lovely blue eyes of the anthropomorphic personification. Oh, yeah. But it was... It was quite a helpful thing to read right now. You know, I've said to you in, in private conversations, I have kept my optimism to an absolute minimum over the last year because look at the last fucking year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It seems like the sensible thing to do after a while. Yeah. The US election, whatever is going to happen with the fucking pandemic and the probably constant state of lockdown in and out. Yeah. The lockdown hokey cokey. <laughs> So I've decided to revert to it. And also, you know, the things that happened in my personal life. So I was saying earlier with Mrs. Flitworth, you know, this tragic thing happens. She loses her lover yeah. on the morning of their marriage. And she goes, well, isn't this silly? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's this thing now. But she doesn't lose hope with that. She has this awful thing happen to her and she re- retains some sort of cautious optimism. I like Because it. she is still alive. Yeah. I, I do like that. I don't like the whole keep calm and carry on stiff upper lip thing so much. I like... It's not quite stoicism either, but just the realization that this is how things are now. So we will go on from here. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and we will keep finding the good bits and the yes. hope in all of the ridiculousness of yeah. what life is going on. Yeah, and it's hard and it's to also- say this stuff without coming across like a like one of those irritating forced positivity people. But Pratchett manages it in the form of Flitworth. Yeah, he writes tough old ladies very well. And Miss Flitworth falls into that category of tough old lady who is very practical. I love an intensely practical human. Mm. And this is something that comes in with the death stuff in this section. This is something I really love about Pratchett's writing is that death as a character is inc- it's very flexible characterization. Um, where he goes through different ways of trying humanity, more where he did hu- humanity as a tourist, mm. now where he's doing humanity is trying to cling on to a last bit of life before he's taken out by the new death. Yeah. And there's this moment where he sits down with people and uh, he realises that they are all individuals the way he didn't so much when mm. he was deaf. And it doesn't quite add up continuity-wise because he's paid attention to individuals before. He had Isabel, he had Mort. Yeah, but it almost seems like after every one of Death's Adventures, he resets himself. Well, this is what I mean about flexible characterization. Yeah. So in the hands of a different author, this would be a criticism. This would be, oh, well, he can't even keep track of his own characters. Yeah. In the hands of Terry Pratchett, who has this big, rich, world, nuanced world, you can make a character who has turned up before who you need him to be for that section. I mean, if you remember Death in Colour of Magic, and now we had to keep reassuring the audience, eventually you'll see why we really yeah, yeah. like We're this not guy. Fucking psychos, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it, he's an antagonist in that book. Yeah. He's kind of an arsehole. And he sort of starts to calm down a bit by Light Fantastic. And then you get to who he is now. 
And it's one of the best things about the Discworld is that the characters are flexible. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it comes out as straight like character development. Like I would say Vimes develops rather than changes yeah. randomly. I know it's never random, but you know what I mean. Um, but yeah, and I think Death, the fact that he is an anthropomorphic personification of a human fear means that, yeah, you can you can write him like this and it, it doesn't feel conflicted. No, it doesn't yeah. at all. It feels like uh, he has partly become like this because he's been around Miss Flitworth, who was, whereas, again, while he, when he was around humans before, he wasn't around any one specific person for a long time. Yeah. Apart from Isabel, who we didn't really know what to do with other than... Yeah. My back just started twinging again. Can we check the election? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I mean, we will, but I don't want to. <laughs> Francine's most like... Much like some people have a false hip that tells them when it's going to rain, Francine's back can predict political upheaval. Which is actually a perfect segue onto uh, the next talking point, folk meteorology, uh, which comes from a very short little joke when we're meeting the village people, trying to say that without referencing the band, saying things like, uh, oh, I just saw some low-flying swallows and some partridges going into the woods and snails spiders spinning their webs backwards uh, which i can't find any justification for you'll be devastated to learn but i always like this kind of thing um were you taught any of the signs a storm was coming when you were a kid i i, I was never taught any of this as a kid like how to look out for the signs of storms uh because we did i didn't really have that sort of upbringing yeah no fair enough um i think the one i remember was being told us, I've forgotten the species of tree, but a certain tree's leaves would turn over and you could tell because they were silvery on oh, the right. bottom. Um, and then there, there is one I'm sure we both know, which is the red sky in morning, shepherd's warning. Yes. Um, which in America is sailors, apparently, sailors warning. Uh, so what, what? some of the common rhymes, and a lot of them are rhymes, um, have a little bit of grounding in reality. So, um, I mean, they would, because they, they come from people who watch the weather. Mm. They need to because they are farmers. Uh, it really matters, as becomes apparent later in this book. Um, one of the ones was he said he saw some low-flying swallows. Uh, one, the rhyme is, when swallows fly high, the weather will be dry, um, which has some truth, possibly, because uh, something about warm air convections. Mm. So when, when it's nice weather, the swallows will be higher. Um, uh, some other examples I quite liked were, uh, seagull, seagulls, sit on the sand. It's never good weather when you're on land. Um, which seems a bit like the one from Mean Girls, where she says, I can tell it's raining when my tits get wet. <laughs> seagulls don't really like flying in shit weather, unsurprisingly. But like you probably know it's windy already. <laughs> and then uh, the other one, if a circle forms round the moon, will rain or snow soon? I don't like the lack of meter in these, I have to say. Just yeah. Cause just because you're folk doesn't mean you're exempt from proper poetry. Oh, I agree. Uh, but anyway, the cloud layer at the top of a weather front um, is kind of wispy and made of ice crystals, and that can cause a lunar corona around the oh, and the moon. Yeah, a little nice. circle around it. So that's quite cool. Uh, so folk, yeah. meteor folk yeah. meteorology, God, that's hard to say, is a thing. And it makes sense. It is. I enjoy it. it. Is. Ancient combines, Francine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the whole bit about Simnel's workshop and his uh, combination harvester mm. um, is quite new fun. One. And it kind of, I think it harkens to Pratchett's mechanical upbringing. Was his dad a mechanic? Yes, I believe so. I'd have to grab Mark's book out to check. and Yeah, for once I've left it in the other room. But um, he uses where, like, random, 
I think, combinations like Trunnion Armature. Yes, um, three-inch Gripply. Yes, which Trunnion and Armature are definitely both mechanical words. I don't know if they go together. They might. Um, <laughs> yeah, neither of us really know enough about mechanics to know just how accurate Ned, the Ned Simdall <laughs> yeah. section is. It's interesting. Pratchett seems to have kind of a love-hate relationship with machinery in the disc world, doesn't he? Because he obviously takes great joy in explaining a lot of it, but at the same time, the progress often comes up as the antagonist. Yes. Um, uh, and this uh, machine is going to revolutionise farming methods and drag them kicking and screaming into the century of the fruit bat. As so many things do. <laughs> he really likes things being dragged kicking and screaming into the century of the fruit bat. The poor century of the fruit bat. It's getting a bit full. <laughs> Um, but so I had a look at combine harvesters early versions of because why the fuck not? Yep. Uh, horse pulled combines were indeed the first type. Yeah. Uh, well, there was a hand pushed one in 1826, but the Scottish chap who invented it didn't patent it, so it doesn't really count apparently. Um, and it, I'll tell you what, they do look fucking mental. I sent you a picture the other day. Yeah, we'll tweet this picture. It's fantastic. Pratchett got his description bang on. It's a random arms and. What, what, what was the description exactly? Uh, hang on, I'm on the right page. page. Uh, da, da, da. Something about a windmill hitting a factory full of nonsense. It looked at first sight like a portable windmill that had been attacked by an enormous insect, and at second sight like a touring torture <laughs> chamber for an inquisition that wanted to get out and about a bit and enjoy the fresh air. Mysterious jointed arms stuck out at various angles. There were belts and long springs, and the whole thing was mounted on spiked metal wheels. Yeah, so it's pretty much like that. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure about the internal workings and how uh, accurate that was. But so it was 1835, him, Moore's machine was the first one. And that could cut about 15 foot grain at a time. So these were fucking big things. And then by 1839, they had ones that were pulled by 20 horses. Jesus. Yeah. They were huge. And they, they were American largely, all this progress came through. Because as you can imagine... 20 horses in a field that works well in a huge sweeping wheat field of america yeah not not so so well in the strange little muddy fields of the uk um they they kind of caught on in the 30s when uh, compact machines were a bit more practical but you're just not going to be towing around a small building no with 20 horses you don't have (laughs) yeah i mean who's feeding the 20 horses yeah so I, i just had a nice time looking at pictures of vintage farm equipment really i've always liked that kind of thing if you uh, ever have the chance to go around an agricultural museum it's a lot less soul destroying than you might imagine it is all I, I really like the aesthetic it's oddly fascinating and yeah it, that description is spot on it does all look a bit eldritch yeah. <laughs> absolutely or oblong yeah. as one might say Yes, as one might. And uh, there's also a good place to find character names. I've got one written down for later use that I saw at some museum or another. The Edlington Mower. I think Edlington Mower is a fantastic character name. Ah, yes, Edlington Mower of the Somerset Mowers. Exactly so. (laughs) Uh, And that's all I have to say about windmills and torture instruments. Excellent. Well, I'm glad that I do not have to experience a brand new combine harvester firsthand. Oh, but I'll give you the key. Come on, let's get to get right now. We're all going to learn just how terrible my West Country accent is. So, yeah, I wanted to round us out with something metaphysical. So I'm going back something to... metaphysical. Oh shit, now mine's got much worse since I stopped singing the Wurzels all the time. Something <laughs> metaphysical. <laughs> let's get metaphysical. Oh Jesus. <laughs> 
Look, you knew when you agreed to do a podcast with me that my sense of humour was the worst. I did, and that's because mine is as well. It's just that when it, it's like looking in a mirror sometimes, and it's not always flattering. Exactly. Uh, the power. I get metaphysical. The power of do. belief. Uh, and this is, I will always point this up when it comes up in a Bratchett book, because this is the theme he comes back to again and again, and I you just like love it. it. And there's the lovely descri- description here. This is 104 in my copy. Belief sloshes around in the firmament like lumps of clay spiralling into a potter's wheel. And that's how gods get created. They must be created by their own believers, because a brief resume of the lives of most gods suggests that their origin certainly wouldn't be divine. They tend to do things people would do if only they could, especially when it comes to nymphs, golden showers, and the smiting of your enemies. Fucking Zeus. Ah, the original fuckboy. Yeah, and that's kind of uh, bolstered by the look into the gods' lives through Ridcully the priestly in part one. Mm. The priestly Ridcully. And this is how death comes into existence as an anthropomorphic personification. He exists because the humans need to believe something about death. And, and apparently uh, so do other species because well yes it creates this void and as this death goes there is uh, a little death of mayflies uh, a very very slow a creature of sound only the death of trees over the desert a dark and empty shell moves purposefully half an inch above the ground the death of tortoises creepy as fuck and this is where the uh, death of rats starts existing as well yeah yeah God, the death of tortoises is creepy, isn't it? I didn't really stop on that one. but Yeah, it's a really good bit of almost horror writing that you could just mm. skip over. But it's the, this wonderful thing that works on the belief. The Discworld belief sloshes around and belief creates things. Belief creates yeah. gods. Gr- belief creates death. Yeah. And then you come to not knowing what death believes in later on. Mm. Uh, and this is... Uh, when he experiences dreaming for the first time and the dream he has had is that he's back in his study, there's been some mistake and then he's given a lifetimer and it's Miss Flitworth's. Yeah. And uh, he sort of has this moment of, well, shit, I've just realised we're going to die. Like, I'm going to die. He writes dreams very well, doesn't he, as well? That's hard to do. Yes. Uh, dreams are very hard. The not quite linear logic of them. Yeah. yeah. And trying to logic his way through the lack of logic through, well, this is what this must be because Bildor is confused and, yeah, and there yeah. are bits of li- Bildor lingering around my non existent yeah. ears. <laughs> and he realizes, you know, what happens to you when you die is what you believe will happen. Yeah. And he doesn't know what he believes in because he's never had to believe in anything. He exists because of belief. He is believed in. He does not do any believing. And suddenly he finds himself really needing to start doing some believing. Yeah, and it's his belief that sees him through. You know, as we go through the falling action to the end of the book. Yeah, and that's kind of the hope is added in there from Miss Flitworth, which yeah, he gets belief and he gets hope and he gets all the and there there's such human things. Yeah, and again, it could be so wanky if written by someone else. Just saying that makes it sound blur, doesn't it? Like I would really struggle to describe this book to somebody who didn't know Pratchett and make it sound as good as it is. Mm. But it's such a. I don't know, it's such a serene moment for him to... It makes him relate to humanity in a way he couldn't when he was adopting someone or getting an apprentice or living with yeah. Albert. Yeah, Because sure. he has to face this aspect of humanity he's never had to deal with before, which is what's going to happen when it all ends. Yeah. I mean, speaking as an atheist, I can't wait to embrace the void, but... <laughs> 
Ah, oh, not me. I'm going to live forever. Yeah, yes. that too. I think we both know that existential fear of death is what drives me onwards every day. So, yay, existential crisis. Wipe the board back to zero. Oh, it's been at zero forever. I can't fucking get it up from the top shelf. Um, <laughs> I put it behind a bunch of look. Look, we re- we're, we're recording remotely forever now, and it just feels too sad to get a prop out and sit here on my own with it. <laughs> I miss recording in your house. I know. I was thinking that. Never mind. Anyway, uh, never mind. One day for a special. It's looking less likely. That's going to be Christmas now, is it? Yeah, I'd, I'm not going to count on Christmas. Anyway, uh, reference something obscure with a finial for me, Francine. Yeah. All right. Uh, Get your finials out for the lads. Boiling brandy. Bit of a strange, obscure reference finial because he kind of tells you exactly what happens, but I like the information behind it. So when the fire is happening at the pub... Oh, I'm sorry. I think that was the door. I'm sure this would have gone through the letterbox. Right, um, <clears throat> Boiling brandy. Yeah, I like the information behind it. Um, so during the pub fire, mm-hmm. the, the fire at the end, um, it kind of comes to a an apex when the barrels of brandy start to boil. And the thing about boiling brandy is that it doesn't boil for very long. Mm. And then there is an explosion. And I was like, ooh, yeah. Now, why is that? Um and the answer is it's because ethanol boils at a lower temperature than water, mm. which we know. Uh, so ethanol boils at 79 degrees Celsius. Yes. Um, and that fact is obviously used in distillation. Uh, so the vapours from the boiling liquid are collected and then immediately condensed and dripped down into the what's it. Uh, <laughs> Technical term there. Yeah, well, I had limited time. <laughs> but if these highly flammable vapours, let's underline those words, uh, have nowhere to go, they build pressure, obviously. And eventually, in this case, explode the barrel that they're in. Yes. Uh, now, if there's a fire outside the barrel, which one would presume there is on account of the boiling, uh, that highly flammable cloud of vapours is going to cause a fireball and possibly even a fuel-air explosion, which is exactly as fun as it sounds. Uh, <laughs> it's weaponized in many cases. Mm. Um, but yeah, I was looking at times this had actually happened, and one that Pratchett might remember uh, was from 1960. It was known as Britain's worst ever peacetime fire service disaster. Oh. The Cheapside Street Whiskey Bond Fire in Glasgow killed 19 servicemen in 1960. Um, I'll link to the article I found about this. The warehouse owned by Arbuckle Smith and Company contained over a million gallons of whiskey and rum held in wooden casks. The liquid exceeded boiling point, causing a massive explosion in the building, killing firemen stood at street level. Around 450 firefighters battled the blaze, which took an entire week to extinguish. Jesus. Um, yeah, and it? Uh, a little end tip there. I learned quite a lot of this, the sciencey bits, from a pressure cooking site, by the way, which I quite ah. often use for instant pot recipes, um, and to 
uh, distill, as it were, the information from that article. Don't pressure cook liquor. Yeah. That is all. <laughs> Wine I, um, is about the highest alcohol you want to put in a pressure cooker. Yeah. I um, I obviously flame brandy often when cooking. Of course, yeah. Flambe and stuff is a perfect example of that, yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, but tiny fuel air explosion <laughs> the problem with flaming brandy is that you've got to catch it and ignite it before the liquid bubbles away yeah. and there is about a split second you can do it so i have to have a lighter at the ready it was much when i had a gas hob it's fine because you pour it in then you tilt the pan so it catches on the gas hob but now i have an electric hob i have to hold yeah. a lighter above the pan yeah. stick it in light it what does that do then that uh burns the alcohol off faster so you don't get any bitter aftertaste from the alcohol Right, so if you just let it evaporate, it leaves an aftertaste kind of Yeah, there's a bit of a funny... Yeah. Depends on the brandy, but as uh, the brandy I buy for cooking is like cheap, shitty yeah, supermarket cooking, cooking brandy. brandy. <laughs> so I don't okay. really drink brandy. I, I've never liked the taste, but I love the smell because it smells like Christmas. I love the smell of cooking with it. Now, there aren't many liquor smells I actually enjoy, but um, brandy is one of them just because, mm. yeah, it smells very heavily of Christmas to me. Yes, the flaming Christmas pudding. Which, yeah, I can't stand eating Christmas pudding, but I do like pouring flaming brandy it. on it. I fucking love Christmas pudding, and I like it with brandy on it, actually. So, yeah. I do I do like the taste without the alcohol in it. Like, when I drank alcohol, I, I didn't much care for the taste of it, but yeah. Well, <laughs> perhaps I'll make you a non-alcoholic Christmas cake. I've got my mother's old recipe. I'm sorry, I can eat alcohol in food. Like it's <laughs> okay. well, Then perhaps I'll make you a Christmas cake. Yeah. <laughs> I have my mother's old recipe. I won't make it for myself. Dried fruit's the devil. I'm going to have to eat the whole thing then. I can't even share it with Jack. He hates dried fruit as well. I'll make you a small one. Okay. Otherwise, it'd be like that scene in the Matilda film. We have to eat that entire yeah, yeah. <laughs> Eat it. I have never been more jealous of anyone than of that guy in Matilda. Yeah, it was such a weird conflict of emotions, wasn't it? It was like, that looks revolting and I'm so hungry. Well, especially as I was quite young when I watched it and I couldn't eat chocolate when I was younger. It used to give me dreadful migraines. Oh, no. Yeah. So the intense jealousy I felt at someone eating that much chocolate. Oh, I didn't know that about you. This is oh, some yeah. backstory trauma. Oh, yeah. This is the main part of trauma from my childhood. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right i think we've said uh, everything we came here to say and then some (laughs) and then some i love our tangents uh so yeah we will be back next week with the final part of our reaper man discussion which begins on the corgi paperback edition on page 187 with the line burdened by the screaming four of the bursa the other wire basket couldn't get up to speed of its departed comrade tempting sentence so uh, we'll start there and we'll go to the end. We'll be quite idea. sad to let this book go. Yes, well, it'd be a lot sadder if it wasn't for the next one. Yes, very true. Anyway, thank you very much for listening to The True Shall Make You Fret. You can follow us on Instagram at The True Shall Make You Fret, Twitter at Make You Fret Pod, on Facebook at The True Shall Make You Fret. You can email us your thoughts, queries, castles, snacks, and albatrosses, The True Shall Make You Fret Pod at gmail.com. You can follow our subreddit, r slash TTSMYF. <laughs> sometimes it gets updated. And remember, we as we in England go into lockdown too, and a lot of European countries do as well, and America does whatever the fuck it's doing. America. Oh, hold on. Let's refresh the beep one more time, see if anything, see if we can end this on a note. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not sure what note, a note. Uh, uh, what have we got? Uh, okay, it's not finished yet, but Biden builds momentum with lead in Georgia. That's good. That's Excellent. Good, right? That's yeah, good. I think so. <laughs> and it's pulled ahead in Pennsylvania. Uh, um. 
Yes, but please remember you can get in touch with us with either silly things. If you've got any agony aunt questions you would like answered in a comedic form, then tell us that. If you want to reach out because you're lonely in a lockdown or a possible right-wing fascist dictator state, we are here for poetry, cooking videos and... I'm not sure how much I can do about that second one. (laughs) Well, I mean, eventually we'll have... sharpening tips. (laughs) Yes. Disclaimer, not actually inciting revolution. (laughs) (laughs) And in the meantime, dear listener, don't let us detain you. Eventually I'll get to have you over for a proper dinner. Yeah. We'll have to move the plants out the way and... The plants have their own tables now. Okay, good. <laughs> what we feed them at the same time? <laughs> yes, and hopefully that will keep them love, dormant. You know how at like um, big family Christmases, sometimes you'd have like a kids table. Yeah, I'd like to have a dinner party at yours. Like banish somebody to the plant table. <laughs> <laughs> Someone has to sit alone among the triffids. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like you've not been behaving. You have to go and sit with the aloes. <laughs> <laughs> that'll be me after I burn myself